for your power and your glory. We ask now as we delve into your word, that your word would indeed inspect us and delve into us. Grant me the grace I need to preach your word in an unvarnished manner. And grant my brothers and sisters the grace that they need to hear your word with pure hearts and open ears. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, just a few days ago, we commemorated the marking of Pearl Harbor Day, a day of infamy in our nation's history, a time when we were attacked by Imperial Japan, and that marked our entrance into World War II. Certainly not going to talk about politics here or what exactly happened there. What I'd like to talk about for a moment is the fear that must have descended upon those who were there. Uh, Some of you have been in the armed services and uh, might have experienced uh, something like this, but most of us uh, don't experience uh, this type of horror, this type of fear. There was a young reporter in Honolulu there who wrote an eyewitness account of what happened at Pearl Harbor. But her description was so vivid and the description was so graphic that the publishers refused to publish it. They didn't think that it was acceptable or proper. And it was only recently published. And I'd like to read to you, because her words are much more striking than my retelling of them, just a brief portion of it. And if you'd like to have the link sent to you, I'd be more than welcome to send you the link. For seven ghastly, confused days, we've been at war. To the women of Hawaii, it has meant a total disruption of home life, a sudden acclamation to blackout nights, terrifying rumors, fear of the unknown as planes drone overhead and lorries shriek through the streets. The seven days may stretch to seven years, and the women of Hawaii will have to accept a new routine of living. It is time now, after the initial confusion and terror have subsided, to sum up the events of the past week to make plans for the future. Like the rest of Hawaii, I refused to believe it. All along the sunny road to town, people were just coming out with dogs running lazily in the driveways. Just turn this over. Then from the neighborhood called Punchbowl, I saw a formation of black planes diving straight into the ocean off Pearl Harbor. The blue sky was punctured with anti-aircraft smoke puffs. Suddenly, there was a sharp whistling sound. Almost over my shoulder and below, down on the school street, I saw a rooftop fly into the air like a pasteboard movie set. For the first time, I felt that numb terror that all of London must have been feeling for months. It is the terror of not being able to do anything but fall on your stomach and hope the bomb won't land on you. It's the helplessness and terror of sudden visions of a ripping sensation in your back, shrapnel coursing through your chest, total blackness, maybe death. That's just part of it. As I said, most of us won't feel that level of terror, that level of fear. And we should thank God for that. But we all do feel terror. 
And we all sometimes awake at night fearful of this or that. We all experience fear. And in light of Pearl Harbor, one of the most famous aphorisms a president has ever uttered was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, actually, I think he said it about the Great Depression, but FDR said a lot of memorable things, and one of them was, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, my experience has been rather the opposite. And quite a few people, more than a few people, including Christians, fear life itself. They fear everything around them. You can see it in their eyes. They're worried, concerned, they're nervous, almost as if they're in a war zone, when in reality most of us live lives of um, fairly good creature comforts. We fear life's challenges, don't we? Do you face the challenges of your life totally brave without ever wondering if you're up to the task? Do you fear the challenges of life, or when the challenges come, um, do you just jump out of bed like Sir Galahad and uh, take on the day, or every now and again do you hold something back? Uh, What about the challenges we think of our children and grandchildren facing? I know as a parent, uh, that terrifies me more than anything I faced. Fear, you wonder, what will the world be like? Well, Am I preparing them well enough? Is it going to go well with them? Will it be well with their soul? Or is something horrible going to happen? And we worry about things that we have no control over because we simply cannot predict the future. Indeed, many of us do fear life itself. But the good news is is that we don't have to fear like this. Because God is with us. And if God is with us, who could be against us? God is with us, therefore we do not have to fear. Now, for those under attack at Pearl Harbor, I can't imagine what that fear and terror was like. This week when I had to uh, drive my nephew to the train station, he stayed with us for a week, to drive him back, I experienced a little bit of nervousness. Nothing terrifying. I'm going into Pittsburgh. I had to drop him off very early uh, yesterday, his train left at seven, so he had to be there around six thirty. So we got up at five thirty. It was still dark, and while I was coming back on twenty eight, twenty eight's on under construction. It always seems as if it's under construction, but twenty eight coming back towards the Butler area, you get to drive through this. It's not a tunnel, but for a long swath of road, you're in between concrete medians, and they, you know, I have a suburban, and it just felt as if the concrete at any moment was going to grab hold of either side of the vehicle and just scrape it to, to shrivel and just make me fly out of control. You can't go more than 25 miles an hour through this thing, so there really wasn't any incredible danger. Plus, there was hardly anybody on the road at that time, although it was foggy. But you get nervous in these situations, but it's nothing like Pearl Harbor. I mean, there weren't planes flying overhead dropping bombs on me. But you get nervous when these things happen. So how much more then, when we think about something that actually might go wrong, we can actually be afraid? Will the economy tank? Will our society continue to slide into the gutter? Maybe. Maybe not. 
But irrespective of what happens, God is with us. But what we have to understand is this. Is it just even more so? Those people at Pearl Harbor, they were in war. I want you to ponder this for a moment. When Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was oblivious to the war that was around him. Let me repeat that. When Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was oblivious to the war that was around him. His mother saw the war because, you see, the world was under attack from the evil one and those in league with him. But if Jesus truly is a man, if the incarnation isn't some type of fairy tale, if it's not a magical event, then he really was at one time a day-old infant in his mother's womb. And day-old infants are not aware of what's going on. Just think about that. That the eternal Son of God would take on all of the limitations of human flesh except for sin. He was unaware of what was going on, but his young mother saw all the horror around her and certainly his stepfather understood. Stepfather had a family to protect, a woman to protect from the rumor of scandals because after all, you're not married yet and well, she is pregnant. How are you going to explain that one, Joseph? So he tries to hide her. Jesus was born into a war zone. He was conceived in a war zone, but I really want you to ponder the reality of his incarnation. He was not aware of the war. Even when he was born, how aware are day-old infants? How aware are two-week-old infants? I could joke and say how aware are teenagers, but I won't. Um, He really was an infant. He really was a baby. Helpless. Some of the Christmas hymns that we sing talk about this mild man of the Lord Jesus. Moms, do you realize he actually did cry? Actually woke up Mary in the middle of the night. And Mary as a sinner must have been annoyed. His diapers actually needed changing. We don't like to think of that. But the eternal Son of God, that's humbling, isn't it? He's completely helpless. What can a baby do for his or herself? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Totally helpless, totally dependent upon the care of those around him or her. It's a perfect example of our relationship with God. In reality, we can really do very little for ourselves. We really can. We can do some things, but very often we get a little bit too big for our bridges, not realizing that we are all under God's provision all under God's mercy. And ultimately, as Christians, under his protection. Just as Jesus, the Son of God, was under the protection of the Father during his conception and his birth. But he was born into a war zone. And this young baby grew up into be a man amongst men. A mensch, as the Germans would say. Stalwart. Steadfast. Jesus felt fear. Did you know that? So if you see, fear isn't a sin. 
Let's flash forward 33 years or so to the Garden of Gethsemane, John 17. He really is scared there. He's never scared of men. He's not worried about them. He's not scared of women. He's certainly not scared of children. He's not scared of wild beasts. He is not scared of Satan. He's scared of the Father's judgment. He's terrified of the Father's judgment. That's why he says, Father, if it is your will, please let this cup pass. And the cup he's talking about is not the cup of the communion table behind me. It wasn't the cup that he had um, sanctified at that final Passover when he transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. The cup of the wrath of the Father for your sins and your sins and my sins. He was terrified of that. And well, he should have been, because he knew that what he was going to come in for was a war that would make Pearl Harbor, that quite frankly would make Auschwitz look like a a child's walk in the park, a sunny day in Disney World. The most horrifying thing you can think about on this earth is literally like a child's dream vacation compared to what Christ suffered on that cross. And because he suffered like that, he can come to us and assure us that things will be okay. And that really is the spirit of the season. Amongst all of the jolly frolicking, to realize that Christ has come in the flesh to comfort those of us who have to be made of flesh, to save those of us who cannot save ourselves because of the weakness of our flesh, because we sin. Day after day after day, but he was sinless. Now, there are some who would say, well, if God is with us, well, then we're going to be given a a free ride. We're going to have an easy life, a problem-free life, a pleasure-filled life. God will indeed make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, and I'll, I'll have everything I need if I have just enough faith. That's a very popular teaching today, and there's only one real problem with it. Jesus himself never says that. As a matter of fact, he says something rather quite the opposite of it. He's talking to his disciples. I have a zillion uh, pads here. He's talking to his disciples before he... Um, Before he goes to the cross. He says these amazing words. These things I have spoken to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see Jesus guarantees us. Tribulation and trial. This might be earth shattering to you. Jesus himself guarantees them. So you really need to get, and I need to get totally out of our minds, any idea whatsoever that life is always going to be rosy. It's not. And preachers who tell you that it will be are liars. It's just that simple. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee because the world system itself is against the Lord. Read Psalm 2. The armies of the evil one are assembled. The kings of the earth assemble themselves against the Lord and, and, and seek to break the bonds of the Holy One and 
That's why I tell people, keep reading Psalm 2, because the, the heavenly one, he sits back and laughs. But we don't have that luxury, because we're in the, we're in the midst of the war. You can hear me still, can't you, even though the mic broke? For thousands of years, preachers didn't have mics. I don't need one either. There we go. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's why John, the Apostle John, tells us in his first epistle, love not the world nor the things of the world. For the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's all passing away. This world is temporary, brothers and sisters. It's a day older than it was yesterday, just as we are. But the new heavens and the new earth are coming. And we can look forward to that. But this world, and when, when the scriptures use the world, they're not talking about the world of nature. It's not talking about the physical earth very often. It's talking about the cultural system in any given society that is erected in place of a godly society. In other words, a society that has no problem with abortion and a society that has no problem with theft, legal or illegal. And a society that has no problem with useless wars done for profit. And a society that has no problem with all types of perversions not only legal, but exalted and pushed upon the minds of young children. That's the type of situation that John is referencing when he says the world. Now, for our brothers and sisters in other places, the world is a little bit different. For instance, if you're a Christian in Saudi Arabia, you don't have to worry about drunk drivers because there's no alcohol there. And if you get caught with alcohol in Saudi Arabia, you're in a world of trouble. In North Korea, I don't think there are many Christians, but if you are, you don't really have to worry about uh, internet filth because you know what? They don't have the internet. They're not allowed to have it. In North Korea, if you get caught with a cell phone, get this, you can be brought up as a war criminal. It's that controlled. So you see, the world will take on different faces depending on the society. We don't have to worry about being brought up as war criminals for having cell phones. I have one in the pulpit right here. That's where I have my notes. Nice, nice, nice gizmo. But we have all kinds of other things coming at us, and we are told not to love them. But how many of us love them? And let me just tell you this. Part of the problem that we have is that we bring tribulation trial upon ourselves from the world because we love the world so much. If you want the riches of Christ, if you want the glory of Christ, if you want the benefit and beauty of Christ to be in your life, then guess what? You actually have to be in the same room with him. If you had a rich granddaddy and you wanted something from him, it's going to be better if you ask him in person than if you just shoot him an email through an intermediary. If you want the glory of Christ to be in your life, you need to be in his presence. Now, is he everywhere all the time? Yes, indeed. But are you presently in your minds with him everywhere? No. He's with you wherever you go. Do you acknowledge that? Maybe. He's with you wherever you go. Are you actively and intentionally 
dwelling in his presence? Or are you focusing on the world? Jesus is right there with you and the Holy Spirit's burning inside you when you sin. That's why after you sin or in the middle of your sin, you're not feeling real special about it. Because the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin. Sin is indeed pleasurable for a season. That season might be five minutes, it might be five seconds, it might be five years. A season isn't defined, but eventually it will not be pleasurable. Love not the world, brothers and sisters, because the world will bring you tribulation. The world will bring you terror. The world will bring you horror. The things of this world, they're lies. The world says, I will satisfy your desires. And you chase after this, and we chase after that, and we end up empty-handed, hungry, wanting more. You understand that the world actually wants to turn you into a drug addict of sorts. It wants to give you just enough. Just enough. There goes that mic again. It wants to give you just enough so that you keep coming back for more. Nobody intentionally sets out to become a junkie. Nobody intentionally sets out to ruin their life with drugs. They take it once, they take it twice, and then before you know it, ten years of their life are gone. And that's what the world wants to do to you. That's what the evil one wants to do to you. Some of you are fishermen. I like to say, if if the fish knew it was underneath that bait, it wouldn't come swimming towards your line. But once it bites... Very often, it's just simply too late. And that's what temptation is like. It's wrapped in... I almost said swaddling clothes. It's not wrapped in swaddling clothes. It's wrapped in gold. It shimmers. It looks looks wonderful. And that's why Paul says that Satan's messengers come as angel of light. They don't come as awful, gruesome-looking demons. He'd run away from them. Oh, people have this idea that Judas was somehow always looking as if he was hung over with bags under his eyes and just greasy looking. No, Judas was a very smooth character. Nobody had any idea that he was a traitor. How do you become that type of agent provocateur without looking very smooth? He was in charge of the money. If somebody looks like a thief, you don't put them in charge of the money. You put the person in charge of the money that you think, wow, he looks, he's honest. Boy, he looks smooth. He can do things. Let him do it. Yep. So he robbed. The thief comes to rob, destroy, and kill. But Christ came to give us life. He came to give us life. That's why we don't have to fear. That's why Paul can tell us towards the end of his life, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. And love and the sound mind. So you see, every time you experience that spirit of fear, it's a lie. It's not from the evil one. Now, let me just qualify. There is a difference of feeling fear if you're driving and you hit a, a patch of ice and your car goes out of control. That's just adrenaline. If you don't feel nervous when that's happening, you're either... Um, you're either a sociopath, you don't have any feelings, or you've just conditioned yourself over practice to not feel the fear. Now, I have a friend who's a Green Beret, and he's got to do a lot of very 
scary things that most of us, well, most men, we dream about doing it, but if we really had to do it, we probably won't want to. And the way he got used to it is you just keep doing it over and over again. So he feels nervous if he's shot at, but hey, on Thursdays when it's not wartime, his whole day was 12 hours of shooting and getting shot at. He says, well, eventually you just get used to it. You, do, you don't really hear it. And I'm like, oh, that, that's, that sounds... I says, live ammunition? He says, yes, live ammunition. What do you think we're out here playing? He says, no, no. There's a difference between feeling adrenaline and feeling dread of the world. So if you start to feel that dread of the world, that's a life in the pit of hell. Because God's given you a spirit of power, not weakness, one of love, not hatred, and one of a sound mind, not one of a confused mind. So if you start to begin to get confused and nervous and fearful of the world, uh, that's the wrong spirit. That's a spirit of evil. That's coming from the outside. That's not within you. And you need to resist that with the power that is within you. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You have, that's, that was 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So if you experience this experience of fear, who's it coming from? You only have one other choice. The evil one. He wants you to feel that fear. And God knows that we're afraid. Imagine being Joshua. He's got to replace Moses. How'd you like to have that on your job resume? You're going to take Moses' job. Great. Fantastic. And you get the answer directly to me. Fantastic. Moses made one mistake and he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. God tells Joseph, Fear not. Neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. I have it memorized in the King James. Whithersoever thou goest. Wherever you go, God is with you, brother. Wherever you go, God is with you, sister. And that's what that table behind me represents. Emmanuel, Hebrew, God with us. God proves that he's with us by sending his son to die. And that table proves to us that God is not only with us, but that God is for us. So don't be afraid. God is with you. Let's pray. Lord, it is easy for us to grow fearful in this world. We ask that you would protect us from that spirit of fear. In Christ's name, amen.